0: Shalom brothers and sisters, I'm Brother Sid of the Commandment Keepers Church We have a detailed lesson prepared for our brothers and sisters internationally The title of today's lesson will be The Beginning is Near The Beginning is Near Brothers and Sisters According to the Bible, the children of Israel uh, are up against time and i fear that most people will not realize what time we are in until it's too late brothers and sisters the only thing that we're given that's in common to everyone is time brothers and sisters and right now we are at we are in a place in history that we need to be able to examine we need to be able to go into the bible and understand what's going on politically brothers and sisters what is going on politically brothers and sisters you learn politics from the Bible, brothers and sisters. we we'll are to learn something today. We'll learn something today. The title of today's lesson, The Beginning is Near, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> in order to understand the Bible, you have to start off in Genesis, the 25th chapter, brothers and sisters. So in order to understand the characters, the characters in the Bible, all right, You would first need to understand what we're going to hear, okay? Abraham had a son named Isaac, brothers and sisters. And Isaac had a wife, Rebecca, and they had children, right? Remember that? Isaac, the one that was going to be sacrificed, remember he had children. Let's pick it up there. Genesis, the 25th chapter. We're going to read the 23rd through the 27th verse, brothers and sisters. Genesis, the 25th chapter, the 23rd verse, and it reads, And the Lord said unto her, that her being in brothers and sisters. Genesis 25 and 23 reads, And the Lord saith unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was three score years old when she bare them. And the boys grew. And Esau was a cunning hunter. A man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man. Dwelling in tents. Brothers and sisters. We really need to examine this. Because if you don't understand these characters here. You don't understand anything politically. And you definitely don't understand the Bible. brothers and sisters. If you don't understand the four characters. That we just spoke about. Which is Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob and Esau. If you don't understand these four characters. And who they are today. You don't understand the world at all. Okay, so we're going to read this again. We're here at Genesis 25 and 23, and it reads, And the Lord saith unto her, Two nations are in thy womb. And two manners of people shall be separated from thy bow. So, brothers and sisters, right away, this is something that has never transpired before. The word nation means nationality in the Bible, okay? So, what the Lord is saying, you have two two separate nationalities in your womb. See that, brothers and sisters? (laughs) So, this has never happened before. Typically, the nation is still the same when it comes out of the womb. (laughs) as it was when it went in through the seed. You understand, brothers and sisters? So one of them was the seed still of the father. The other was not. Let's take a look here. Let's take a look, brothers and sisters, because there are some distinguishing marks. There are some identifying marks that we can find that are illustrated in these texts. Let's look at it one more time because the author has provided an illustration of the brothers at birth for your review, brothers and sisters. We're here at Genesis, the 25th chapter, and the 24th verse, and it reads, And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau, brothers and sisters, this man, Esau, was the first, what you would call white man, okay, who we call the Europeans today, they are the children of Esau, how do we know? Look at what it says, it says in verse 25 it reads, and the first came out red, look at that, brothers and sisters, so that means his blood showed forth through his skin, okay, So look at this. And then it says he came out like a hairy garment. White people are very hairy. Okay, look at their arms and legs, even on their knuckles, their backs. They're just it's just how God made them. There's nothing wrong with it. They're very hairy people, long hair and all that, flowing hair and all that. (laughs) See? So look at it. He said, Not only is he red, he's hairy. See? (laughs) Now I want you to examine. How Jacob is described, brothers and sisters, because the first child is described. It tells you his color. It tells you how his hair. Right. Let me read that again. We're at Genesis 25 and 24. And it reads, and when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like an hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out. And his hand took hold on Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob. And Jacob, excuse me, and Isaac was three score years old when she bare him. Now, brothers and sisters, why doesn't it tell you, why is there no identifying markers for Jacob? Why doesn't it tell you that Jacob was red all over or anything else? It didn't need to identify Jacob because Jacob looked like everybody else at that time. Brown. Brothers and sisters, there was no white people at this time before Esau. Esau was the first white man. How do we know? Because the text says the Lord saith unto her, two nations are in her womb. So now a new nation is coming out of this sister's womb. And guess what? This thing has happened since then, brothers and sisters, out of the womb of a black woman. Right? Twins, a white child, blue eyes and a black child. Out of the Twins out of the same womb. Black father even science is it's hard to even <laughs> you know science can't even keep up with the most high brothers and sisters but the text is telling you right away Jacob is who you would call the Negroes the natives the Hispanics brothers and sisters those are the Israelites Jacob's name was changed to Israel brothers and sisters okay so you have 12 tribes right so the Negroes are the tribe of Judah and then you have Issachar who are the Mexicans. And then you have Naphtali, brothers and sisters, who are the Hawaiians, the Samoans, the people of the South Pacific, some of the Vietnamese and Cambodians, Philippines, right? Then you have the tribe of Levi, who are the Haitians today. And then you have the tribe of Asher, who are the Brazilians all the way down to Venezuela, brothers and sisters. And then you have the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the sons of Jacob, right? Who are the Cubans today. And then, of course, you had Ephraim, brothers and sisters, or Joseph, right? Remember Joseph? Those are the Vla Iquatainos, or the Puerto Ricans today. And then you had Benjamin, of course. Remember baby baby brother, Benjamin, (laughs) who Joseph was willing to go to war over? (laughs) Benjamin is who? Benjamin is the Jamaicans today. They would be the West Indies today, brothers and sisters. And, of course, you have Simeon, who's one of those 12 tribes. And who is he? Simeon are the Dominicans today, brothers and sisters. You also have the tribe of Reuben, who are the aborigines of Australia, the Seminole Indians. You also have the tribe of Gad, brothers and sisters, which are your Native American Indians, your North, your Native American Indians. Those are the tribe of Gad, and your final tribe is the tribe of Zebulun, which is you know you have uh, Costa Rica, Panama, um, Colombia, all of those areas. So you notice all these people are brown. These. Twelve tribes that I just revealed, brothers and sisters, are the twelve sons of this man, Jacob, here. Okay, brothers and sisters, guaranteed without any shadow of a doubt. In fact, we have a lesson way back in our archives, one of our very first lessons, probably one of our first ten lessons revealing utilizing the Bible going through each tribe to utilize you know scripture to prove exactly what we just said concerning those people okay so we know who all 12 tribes are when you deal with Jewish people they only know who they are (laughs) we know who all tribes are brothers and sisters and it's clear here that the Bible is telling you that we are brothers with the white man those 12 tribes who are all brown people suffering right right now They are brothers to this white man here. Let us read this again, brothers and sisters, because a prophetic image is presented in Genesis of Jacob holding the foot of Esau. Okay, let's read this. Genesis 25 and 25 reads, and the first came out red all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. And after that came out his brother and his hand took hold on Esau's heel and his name was called Jacob. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a prophetic image here. Let's go to 2nd Ezra in the Apocrypha 6 and 8 because what does that mean? That's a prophetic image of Jacob holding on to his brother Esau, who is his older brother, his elder brother. Now, remember, brothers and sisters, remember in Genesis 25 and 23, I'll read it, and the Lord saith unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and the two manners of people shall be separated from thy bowels. Listen to this. And the one people shall be stronger than the other. That's who? That's the younger. So the Negroes, the natives, the hispanic these people will be stronger just naturally than the white man, right? Just natural. And then it says, and the elder shall serve the younger. Now, who's the elder? The elder is Esau, the red hairy one. He's going to serve his younger brother. His younger brother are those 12 tribes. That are just that we just discussed. Can you see how that could be a problem now? Because the prophecy was that the white man. Would actually serve those poor people. That we just discussed. <laughs> Let us show that brothers and sisters. Let us show that. And the elder shall serve the younger. Go to 2nd address in the Apocrypha. The 6th chapter, the 8th and the ninth verse. 2nd Ezra 6 and 8 reads, And he saith unto me, from Abraham unto Isaac, And when Jacob and Esau were born of him, Jacob's Jacob's hand held first the heel of Esau. Jacob's hand held first the heel of Esau. Jacob's hand held first the heel of Esau. For Esau is the end of the world, and Jacob is the beginning of it that followeth. Brothers and sisters, first things first, examine verse 8, examine how it is the patriarchs who are being emphasized in the text. See, the, the Bible is a very patriarchal book, okay? So now we're living in a very matriarchal society, which is completely against the, it's completely against the structure of the Bible. The Bible goes into Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He begat he. He begat he. It always goes through the father. Okay. Who your father was meant a lot, brothers and sisters. So we're showing you that that prophetic image. At Jacob and Esau's birth is now being revealed in 2nd Ezra 6 and 9. 2nd Ezra 6 and 9 reads, For Esau is the end of the world, and Jacob is the beginning of it that follows. So it tells you that Jacob's hand being on his heel is telling you that Jacob, after Esau's done ruling, Jacob will rule. You see that? Without separation because he's holding on to his heel. So it says Esau is the end of the world. So that means Esau, the white man, would be ruling at the end of the world. Now, hold on. If it's the end of the world, how can it be the beginning that followed? Brothers and sisters, the world and the earth are separate words in Hebrew. Okay. The earth is the, you know, what you walk on. Okay. World is another word for society. Okay. So society is will be ended. The earth will be here, brothers and sisters. But it's telling you that Esau is the end of the world. So Esau's heel being held by Jacob in Genesis serves as a prophetic illustration, brothers and sisters. And I'm going to read this again because Genesis illustrates this by illustrating Jacob holding up the heel of Esau. 2nd Asher 6 and 8 reads, And he saith unto me, from Abraham unto Isaac, when Jacob and Esau were born of him, Jacob's hand held first the heel of Esau. And the breakdown is for Esau is the end of the world. And Jacob is the beginning that followed. Brothers and sisters, the title of today's lesson, The Beginning is Near. The beginning is near, brothers and sisters. Esau is the end of the world. Jacob is what follows. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 3, brothers and sisters. We're going to read 1 through 8. Ecclesiastes 3 and 1 reads, To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. Brothers and sisters. In this passage, the author says that there's a time for every matter in life. He illustrates this truth by juxtaposing opposites, as we just read. So Solomon begins this section by stating a thesis in the first verse in the third chapter. He then proceeds to illustrate and demonstrate his thesis. What was his thesis? Ecclesiastes 3 and 1, and it reads... To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. So the author understood that though there are good things in life, the bad things can't be escaped, brothers and sisters. The flow of life is a process of change, so we must learn to accept the process and go with it. So these passages teach us that there's a predetermined time for everything, brothers and sisters. Let me read Ecclesiastes 3 and 6 through 3 and 8. Ecclesiastes 3 and 6 reads, A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. Verse 7 reads, A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. Brothers and sisters, Solomon tells us that life is really a matter of timing. For timing is everything. So it was clear, brothers and sisters, the author in this chapter, Solomon teaches us that it's absolutely imperative that we recognize the stages of transition. Okay, because sometimes you get caught up in the wrong season. You're trying to do in this season what should have been done in last season. You're trying to do in this season what isn't to be done until next season. So it's clear, brothers and sisters, that someone's season is coming to an end. (laughs) Because why? The Bible, 2nd Ezra 6 and 9 said, Esau is the end of the world. And Jacob begin that would follow. Without separation. So as soon as he falls. Then we rise. Who is we? Those 12 tribes that we just discussed. Ranging from the West Indies. All the way down to Vietnam. The Negroes. The Natives. The Mexicans. These are God's people. Without any shadow of a doubt. And anyone who would like to challenge us on that point. Email us. Brothers and sisters. At commandment keepers. The number one. The number eight. At hotmail.com. Okay. We just went here to show that what brothers and sisters, the Bible says there's a time for all things. So there was a time for the white man, so to speak, uh, to rule. And when we say the white man, we're talking about government structure. We're not talking about individual white people. Okay, We're talking about the government structure. How many of the presidents of America in, in America's history have been white? 99% 99% of them. So it's clear. And what country is the greatest country on earth? Supposedly. America. So it's clear that the white man is ruling. It's fine. His face is on the money. You would think that he, he would probably be ruling. We're fine with that. Because why? There's a time for all things. See? And this is why we don't go... V- we don't vote. This is why we don't go out and protest because why? It's not our time. So you're trying to get equality in Esau's time. It's Esau's time to rule. So you're trying to get equality with someone who's ruling right now. And you're not going to get it. <laughs> See? The Bible tells you it's Esau's time to rule. And we're fine with that. We have no issues with the white man ruling. Because that his rulership was given to him by God. Because of our transgression. Let's go to Romans 13 and 11. We're going to read the 11th verse. Through the 14th verse. Romans 13 and 11 reads. In that knowing the time. That now it is high time. To awake out of sleep. For now it is our salvation. Nearer than we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off. The works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Christ and make not provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Brothers and sisters, I I really want to read these again because verse 11 and 12 use a metaphor here. I want to. I want you to examine the text Romans 13 and 11 reads in in that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now is our salvation nearer when we believed Israel the night is far spent the day is at hand let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light now brothers and sisters It said it's high time to awake out of sleep. Understand that when a man is asleep, he's in a state of inactivity. He's unconscious of all around him. So the idea is that it is time to get up out of bed. According to the text, we have overslept. That's why it says in verse 12, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. So, brothers and sisters, he continues the, the wake up metaphor with the admonition. Now look at verse 13 because it betrays the idea of someone who operates in unbridled lust with a sense of impunity. Verse 13 reads, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting, in drunkenness, not in chambering, in wantonness, not in strife, in envying. Verse 14 reads, but put ye on the Lord Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Now, brothers and sisters, verse 14 deals with building a platform for the sin capacity to execute its desires. How do we know? It said make not provision for the flesh. <laughs> See that? So brothers and sisters, if you have just been delivered from alcoholism, you're not going to go past an alcohol store. You're not even going to go in an alcohol store. You're probably not going to hang out with people, um, that are doing, doing alcohol. See that? If you're getting clean from alcohol, you're not going to have any alcohol in your house. Why? Because that would be making a provision for your flesh. <laughs> See? You, you're giving your flesh everything that it would need just in case it does want to sin. See that? So, I want you to examine the text again, brothers and sisters, because Paul returned to the image of clothing ourselves. Here, we clothe ourselves with Christ himself. Listen to this again. Romans 13 and 14 reads, But put ye on the Lord Christ. See, put on is an allusion to dressing ourselves with proper spiritual clothing, brothers and sisters. Examine the principle closely. We must cast off before we can put on, brothers and sisters. I'm going to read this again. Because in verse 12, he says, Therefore, cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So, initially, brothers and sisters, there's something you have to put down first. Okay? You have to cast it off first. You see? Follows to Romans 11 and 25, brothers and sisters. Romans 11 and 25 reads, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel. Who is Israel? Israel, brothers and sisters, are those 12 tribes that we just discussed, brothers and sisters. And for those who may be new to our channel, let me reiterate. Let me recapitulate this, brothers and sisters. The 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah, which is the king tribe, are your Negroes, the, the so-called African-Americans. Yes, Christ was, would have been called an African-American. Yes, David, Solomon, these were, would have been called African-Americans, okay, without any shadow of a doubt. And then you have Issachar, tribe of Issachar, right? Those are your Mexicans. And then you have Natali who are the Hawaiians, the Samoans, the people of the South Pacific, including some of the Cambodians, Vietnamese, and Filipinos. And then you have Levi, the tribe where Moses came from, who are the Haitians, right? They're dealing with voodoo right now, but back then they were the priests. You also have Asher, who are Brazil and Venezuela, those areas uh, that are oil rich. Then you have Manasseh, who are the Cubans, Ephraim, who are the Puerto Ricans, Benjamin, who are the West Indies, including the Jamaicans, Simeon, who are the Dominican Republic, Reuben, who are the Seminole Indians, Gad, who are the Native Americans, and Zebulun who are the Panamanians, the Colombians, the Costa Ricans, brothers and sisters. These are God's chosen 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? So keep that in mind as we go through this, because if you don't know who the people are, the entire Bible is about these people. If you don't know who the people are, then you don't understand anything in the Bible, okay? You can't understand the Bible and not understand the main characters of the Bible, okay? So that's why we're here to to help you out. We're here at Romans 11 and 25, and it reads, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So, brothers and sisters, the idea of Israel's corporate stumbling for a time is a mystery. Who is Israel? Those 12 tribes we just discussed. So, brothers and sisters, the focus of the mystery in this verse is that Israel will be delivered as a nation subsequent to the time allotted for the Gentiles. I want to read that again because it said that blindness in part has happened to Israel when. Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So according to this passage, the Most High assigned a specific span of time designated for the Gentiles rulership. Who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles are not just white people. It's all people outside of the 12 tribes. So that would be Africans, Koreans, uh, Europeans, uh, you know, um, all those people. Okay, brothers and sisters uh people from iran and people from afghanistan and all these areas people from greece these are all gentiles okay so the bible is telling you clearly israel's salvation would be considered a mystery brothers and sisters because those 12 tribes that we just discussed what do they have in common they're all poor they're all being subjugated to the other nations there's a reason for that brothers and sisters because They on those other nations, especially Esau, the white man's government, know that Genesis 25 said he's supposed to serve us. (laughs) And he's trying to put that off as long as possible. Let's go to Jeremiah 30, brothers and sisters. Every Israelite need to understand what we're getting ready to read. We're at Jeremiah 30, verse four through eight. Jeremiah 30 reads, and these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. Why is it referring to Israel and Judah separately? Brothers and sisters, if you know the Bible, after Solomon, the kingdoms were split, brothers and sisters. Um, So Israel at that time was the Northern Kingdom, which are the native tribes, the the Dominicans, the Puerto Ricans, the Mexicans, the the Vietnamese, the Cambodians, so those tribes, those um, what you would call native tribes, the Native Americans, Uh, Those were considered the northern tribe and then you have the southern tribe of Judah Which are Benjamin Judah and Levi the black tribes the dark tribes the Negroes the uh, Jamaicans and West Indies and then the Haitians so these were two separate kingdoms at one time, right? We're here at Jeremiah 30 and 5 and it reads for thus saith the Lord we have heard a voice of trembling of fear and not of peace Ask ye now and see whether a man Doeth travail with child. Where doeth I see every man with his hands on his loins, as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Alas, alas, that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Brothers and sisters, I'm at Jeremiah 30 and 7. First, we wanted to show you that we found the Most High speaking to Jeremiah, the prophet concerning Israel and Judah. See why you need to know who these people are, brothers and sisters? Because the Most High is saying these people, he's hearing a, a spirit of fear from us and trembling. Not We have no peace. Let me, let me read that again. Jeremiah 30 and 5 reads, for thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear. And not of peace. Ask ye now and see whether a man doeth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail and all faces are turned into paleness. Brothers and sisters, verse six describes this time in a way that pictures men going through the pains of childbirth, indicating a time of agony. When it says a man with his hands on his loins and his face turned to paleness, you see that something is going to be happening that's going to be weakening the power of men. See that? You see that, brothers and sisters? The most high foretold of an unparalleled time of trouble characterized by birth pains. I want you to listen to verse 7. Jeremiah 30 and 7 reads, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and will burst thy bonds and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. So, brothers and sisters, the text shows our deliverance from who? From foreign subjugation. He says that what? He would break the yoke of the Gentiles, predominantly the Edomite, right? Esau, the Europeans, the yoke. You put a yoke around the neck, brothers and sisters, to control it, right? He says, strangers shall no more serve themselves of us, which means what? According to the Bible, we're being exploited by the Gentile nations. Why? Because they know who we are and they're going to keep that from you. See that? So they're going to suffocate you of your own. They're going to starve you of your own identity. You see, it's called Jacob's trouble. The world calls it secular world, calls it new world order. But the Bible calls it Jacob's trouble. Why? Because Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. Name the children of Israel, the 12 tribes. And the Bible says for those 12 tribes, there's going to be a time of unprecedented challenges and obstacles for our people. Why? Because God is trying to free our people. Follow us to Jeremiah 50 and 33. Jeremiah 50 and 33 reads, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The children of Israel and the children of Judah were oppressed together. And all that took them captives held them fast. They refused to let them go. So here we read the current state of affairs concerning our people, brothers and sisters. When you examine the text, the Most High shows himself sensible of the oppression we constantly endure, brothers and sisters. I want you to listen to this again. Jeremiah 50 and 33 reads, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The children of Israel and the children of Judah were oppressed together. And all that took them captives held them fast. They refused to let them go. Remember, Moses told Pharaoh to let us go. He said, no, he is not the only. It says they refused to let them go. So that tells you we've been in captivity more than once brothers and sisters. And the refusal to relinquish the yoke points to what? A perpetual state of oppression. It says they always refuse to let us go. So it would be economically irresponsible for our conquerors to surrender their dominion over us, brothers and sisters. And according to Jeremiah, he anticipates, the most high that is, anticipates a Gentile objection to the liberation of our people. You see that, brothers and sisters? Because why? Esau is the end of the world. Jacob is the beginning that come after. Brothers and sisters, each ethnicity, each nationality, each nation of people have had a chance to rule the earth. So the Babylonians have had a chance to rule. Those are the people over in Iraq. The Persians and the Medes, those people over in Iran, they ruled. Remember that? 300? The Greeks, you know, Alexander the Greek, they ruled. Julius Caesar, they ruled. See that? Everybody's ruled. Everybody has ruled except for who? Those Negroes, those natives, and those Hispanic people. See? So it's our turn. That's fairness. There's a time for all things. Follow us to Jeremiah 16 and 14 because I, I want you to see something here. Jeremiah 16 and 14 reads, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall be no more said, the Lord liveth, that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth that brought the children of Israel from the land of the north, and from all the lands, whether he hath driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I gave their father's. Brothers and sisters, Jeremiah presents the concept of a coming second Exodus, which is a typological fulfillment of the first Exodus. Listen to what he says here, brothers and sisters. Because the Most High made a remarkable promise that there would be a new measure of His greatness and redemptive power. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. Jeremiah 16 and 14 reads Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord. That it shall no more be said that the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So no more will people refer to Egypt, the delivery from Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. However, they'll refer to this. Verse 15. But the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north. What land is that? North America. See that? (laughs) America. See? The land of the north and not only America, because it says, and from all other lands, whether he had driven them and I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. So, brothers and sisters, after our current captivity is completed, the most high will be known for delivering our people from North America predominantly. And it says he would deliver us into our own land. What land is that? The land of Israel, and that small land of Tel Aviv and all that—that that is not the original. That is not the ancient land of Israel. Israel was huge, brothers and sisters. To have all of those twelve tribes in that land and to have separate lands—it was huge. Some of Egypt, what's called Egypt today; some of what's called Assyria today; some of what's called Jordan today—all of somewhat some of what's called Lebanon, brothers and sisters. All of this was part of our land. That now the Gentiles, all those people, are now ruling all of our land. So they're happy we don't know who we are. Because since you don't know who you are, we're going to take your land. (laughs) You're not looking for it because you don't even know who you are. And since you don't know who you are, you don't know the name on this deed of this land. In this Bible. See that? Follow us to Jeremiah 30 and 11, brothers and sisters. I need you to closely examine the proclamation made by the prophet Jeremiah. We're at Jeremiah 30 and 11, and it reads, For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I made a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee, yet I will not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure, and I will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Brothers and sisters, notice that covenant disobedience has consequences as well as benefits. Brothers and sisters, here we read of uh, impending judgment. Listen to this. Jeremiah 30 and 11 reads, For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee. Yet I will not make a full end of thee, but, but. I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. So, brothers and sisters, he makes a difference between the punishment inflicted on the Gentiles and that by which he would chastise the sins of Israel. You see that, brothers and sisters? Because he's going to make a full end of those nations. (laughs) He's telling you he's going to correct us in measure. He's going to correct us in measure, brothers and sisters. So it's crystal clear. This is a time of our chastisement, a time for us to get right, brothers and sisters. And how is he going to do that? Let's go to Amos, the fifth chapter, and the first through the fourth verse, brothers and sisters. Amos 5 and 1 reads, Hear ye this word, which I take up against ye, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She have no more, she shall no more. Rise! She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. Brothers and sisters, the term "virgin of Israel" depicts the the vulnerability of Israel. the The emphasis is on our defensive or our defenseless uh, nature. See when it says the the virgin of Israel. Virgin means young woman. A young woman is unprotected. Okay, without a father or man or something like that. Okay. So I want you to, to examine this because a, a lamentation, it says, uh, "O house of Israel, a lamentation, brothers and sisters, is analogous with a modern day eulogy. OK, so let me read this again. Amos five and one reads, hear ye this word which I take up against you, even a lamentation. O house of Israel, who is Israel, those twelve tribes we discussed. OK, the virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. Verse 3 reads, For thus saith the Lord God, The city that went out by a thousand shall leave one hundred, and that which went forth by one hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. Brothers and sisters, Amos portrayed a defeat of catastrophic proportions, the losses experienced by the children of Israel will be 90%. Listen to this again. Amos 5 and 3 reads, For thus saith the Lord God, The city that went out by a thousand shall leave one hundred. And that which went forth by one hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. So that's 90%. From a thousand to a hundred. From a hundred to ten? Ten out of a hundred is 90%. A hundred out of a thousand is 90%. Brothers and sisters, so the Most High is telling us that while our punishment will be devastating, it will not be total. There will still be a remnant because why? Only ninety percent will be destroyed. That's a lot of us, brothers and sisters. That's a lot of us. But ten percent is also a lot. He's saying, "I'm going to have to. I'm not going to. I'm going to have to destroy a lot of you off because why? You being an Israelite is not good enough." So I want to be clear, just because we're saying that these are the Israelites. Listen, if you don't follow Christ, it doesn't matter who you are. If you don't follow God's laws, it doesn't matter who you are. You can be the blackest Negro coming right off the slave ship. Okay? You can be the most Spanish-speaking Mexican, okay, wearing a sombrero. It doesn't matter. So I, I want to be clear on that. You can't replace Christ with being an Israelite. No. Cannot do it cannot do it, cannot do it, brothers and sisters, so what's most important is Christ, Christ just happened to be an Israelite, who we happen to be, okay, so this is for Jews and Gentiles, brothers and sisters, there's enough transferable truth in this text, or not just this text, but in this lesson, brothers and sisters, okay, okay, Brothers and sisters, follow us to Isaiah, the first chapter, the fifth through the seventh verse. Isaiah 1 and 5 reads, Why should ye be stricken any more? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. and your land, strangers devour in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. Brothers and sisters, when you examine verse 5, Isaiah's point is that the Most High's rod of chastisement has not succeeded. Okay? Why? Because listen to this. Isaiah 1 and 5 says, why should you be stricken or hidden anymore? Ye revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot unto the head. There's no soundness in it. So, brothers and sisters, according to the Bible, Israel is sick, diseased from the top to the bottom. The Most High describes us as totally cancerous. With sin, brothers and sisters. And when you look at verse 6, this is where our disobedience and lack of submission has brought us. Brothers and sisters, sin has brought us great afflictions. However, according to the text, we still prefer sin with all of its turbulence. Because why? He's saying, why should you be stricken anymore, Israel? You're in control of what's going on here. Israel, according to the text, is, is battered, bruised, and bleeding because of our truculent attitude. Who are Israel? Those same 12 tribes that we discussed who were all brown. These were all brown people. Now some may say, why does he keep bringing up who the 12 tribes are? Well, listen, because the whole Bible is about these people. And if anybody has some type of issue with Us identifying who those people are, then you need to look within yourself because why Christ said, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So you need to know who the lost sheep are because why they they don't know who they are. That's why he called them lost. (laughs) See. So even for Gentile learning with us today, there is a position you can take after learning this information. Follow us to Baruch the third chapter, the eighth verse. I'm going to read eight through fourteen. Baruch three and eight reads, Behold, we are yet this day in our captivity where thou hast scattered us for a reproach and a curse and to be subject to payments according to all the iniquities of our fathers, which departed from the Lord our God. Hear Israel, the commandments of life. Give ear understand, give ear to understand wisdom. How happen it, Israel, that thou art in thy enemy's land, that thou art waxing old in a strange country, that thou art defiled with the dead? Brothers and sisters, the text highlights the relationship between our captivity and our disobedience. God's law, according to what we're reading here, is not not oppressive. Disobedience to his law leads to oppression. See? So according to the literature, this literature at least, sin merits and deserves the punishment of total destruction. I'm here at Baruch three and eleven and it reads Thou art counted with them that go down to the grave. Thou hast forsaken the fountain of wisdom, for thou hast walked in the way of God. Thou should have dwelt in that peace forever. Excuse me, verse 13 reads, for thou hadest walked in the way of God, thou should have dwelled in peace forever. Learn where wisdom is, where strength, where understanding, that thou mayest know also where length of days in life, where is the light of the eyes and peace. Brothers and sisters, when we embrace God's ways, one of the byproducts of obedience is the blessing of peace. Verse 13 of the third chapter in Baruch reads, For if thou hadst walked in the way of God, thou should have, have dwelt in peace. So he's saying when you walk in God's way, you dwell in peace, brothers and sisters. So in reality, the formula for peace is simple. It's not easy, but rather simple. There's a difference between being easy and being simple. Okay, Something simple can still not be easy, as we all know. Now, let's follow us to Second Chronicles, the 7th chapter, the 14th verse, and it reads, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So look at this, brothers and sisters. This is why it was imperative. It was vital that we identify who his people. It says, if my people, who is my people? We just discussed it, those 12 tribes. So, brothers and sisters, the first part of the text itemizes what should be done if one is to expect the second part to take place. Listen to this. Second Chronicles 7 and 14 reads, if my people which are called by my name Number one, shall humble themselves. Number two, shall pray. And number three, shall seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. So, brothers and sisters, our action brings reaction, right? So it was clear. First, the Lord says, if you will humble yourself, pray, seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, then he will do three things. He will hear from heaven Forgive our sin and heal our land. So all four things are action verbs, which mean God's people had to do these things in order for the Most High to do what he promised, brothers and sisters. Okay. So when all the actions have been carried out, then the Most High says he would hear from heaven and heal our land. Okay. What was the first thing he said? Let's read that again. Second Chronicles 7 and 14 reads, if my people, which are called by my name, shall number one, humble themselves and pray. Brothers and sisters, notice the chronology is to humble yourself before you pray. Because if you pray without humbling yourself, you're going to be ignored. If you pray with pride still on you, you're going to be ignored, brothers and sisters. So he said, there's no sense of even praying until you've laid down your pride. See, (laughs) so that's the first step, Israel. See, now follow us to Ecclesiasticus in the Apocrypha, the 10th chapter, the 12th and the 13th verses, brothers and sisters. Ecclesiasticus 10 and 12 reads, the beginning of pride is when one departed from God and his heart is turned away from his maker. Verse 13 reads, For pride is the beginning of sin, and he that hath it shall pour out abomination. And therefore the Lord brought upon them strange calamities and overthrew them utterly. So according to the text, pride is the attitude of independence from God. When it says in verse 12, The beginning of pride is when one departed from God. See, that's independence there. See, so the relationship between pride and sin is emphasized in the text, brothers and sisters, when it says that for pride is the beginning of sin. See, hubris is the gateway through which all other sins enter, brothers and sisters. We're seeing clearly that pride is the commencement of all sin. Pride is the the vine that produces a multitude of evil fruits, brothers and sisters. And God's loathing of pride is unalterable, according to the text. See? So number one, he said, if my people humble themselves and pray and seek my face. See? You see that, brothers and sisters? Let's go to Jeremiah 23 and 7 first. Jeremiah 23 and 7 reads, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say the Lord liveth which brought them or brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth with brought which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all the countries where I have driven them and they shall dwell in their own land. Now, brothers and sisters, right away, we see that the Most High will bring us forth out of the North Country. What is that? Once again, North America. But it says from all other countries whether I have driven them. So, brothers and sisters, the Most High is telling you he has driven us and scattered us into a lot of these areas as a form of punishment, brothers and sisters. See that? Why? For our pride. See, and that's why he had to remove the identity, because when we knew who we were, we were a proud people, brothers and sisters. When you have an identity, when you have a culture, it makes you proud, you know, it makes you proud of your culture. And unfortunately, you know, being God's chosen people is just too glorious of a culture, is too rich to have attached to us um, and to be fully subjugated, having that um, in our mind. So the Most High had to make sure that we didn't have that in our mind, right? brothers and sisters, as a as a form or a part of our uh, punishment. Right? I want you to follow us to De- Deuteronomy thirty-two and seven, brothers and sisters. Jeremiah, excuse me. Deuteronomy thirty-two and seven reads: Remember the days of old; consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show thee; thy elders, and they will tell thee. Brothers and sisters, the author encouraged us to uh, consider the events of ancient days and former ages. How do we know? Read it one more time. It says, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. So brothers and sisters, look at this. After that, it says, ask thy father and he will show thee thy elders, and they will tell thee. So this also shows the importance of Israel's men being endowed with the knowledge of this literature. The men, according to the text, are responsible for the distribution of knowledge to our nation. See that? Follow us to Exodus 18 and 17. Brothers and sisters. We're going to read 17 through 22. Excuse me. Um, Let's actually just read. Let's jump around a little bit. Let's read 17 and 18. Exodus 18 and 17 reads, And Moses' father-in-law saith unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou will surely wear away, both thou and this people that is with thee, for this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Verse 21 reads, Moreover thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Verse 22 reads, and let them judge the people at all seasons and there and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee but every small matter they shall judge so shall it be easier for thyself and they shall bear the burden with thee brothers and sisters the nation had become too large for Moses to govern effectively according to what we're reading here and the solution was the appointment by Moses of men to help him lead the people. See, here Jethro, his father-in-law, advises him, Moses, concerning leadership, brothers and sisters. Verse 17 starts right away, and Moses' father-in-law saith unto him, taking all this on yourself is not good. You're going to wear yourself down, you're going to wear the people down. You need to set up some other voices here, okay, in order to sustain this as long as you can. Follow us to Ecclesiasticus in the Apocrypha, 10 and 21, brothers and sisters. Ecclesiasticus 10 and 21 reads, The fear of the Lord goeth before the obtaining of authority, but roughness and pride is the losing thereof. Whether he be rich, noble, or poor, their glory is in the fear of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, according to the author, the acquisition of authority has has a direct correlation to godly fear. How do we know? Read 21 again. Ecclesiastes 10 and 21 reads, The fear of the Lord goeth before the obtaining of authority, but roughness and pride is the losing thereof of that authority. See? So that this particular text has given us the forerunner to authority, which is what? To fear the Lord. So godly authority is never delegated to those who lack the proper fear of God. See that, brothers and sisters? I want you to examine that. Jump with us to Ecclesiasticus 2 and 15 through 2 and 18. Ecclesiastes 2 and 15 reads, They that fear the Lord will not disobey his word, and they that love him will keep his ways. They that fear the Lord will seek that which is well pleasing unto him, and they that love him shall be filled with the law. They that fear the Lord will prepare their hearts and humble their souls in his sight. Ecclesiastes 2 and 18 reads, saying, we will fall into the hands of the Lord and not into the hands of men. For as his majesty is, so is his mercy. Brothers and sisters, according to the Bible, the fear of God drives men to seek his approval in every part of life. Right, Godly fear, it implies that your desires are less important than his, brothers and sisters. And guess what? that. The, you know, that this is a manifestation of authentic godly fear. See? I'm going to read verse 16 again because according to the text, there's evidence that can confirm or verify godly fear. Verse 16 reads, They that fear the Lord will seek that which is well-pleasing unto him, and they that love him shall be filled with the law. So the author teaches us that godly fear is not authenticated with words. See? You see that, brothers and sisters? Look at verse 17, because this passage teaches us that it is the soul that must be humbled. Ecclesiasticus 2 and 17 reads, They that fear the Lord will prepare their hearts and humble their souls in His sight. Okay? Look at verse 18, brothers and sisters. Ecclesiasticus 2 and 18 reads, saying we will fall into the hands of the Lord and not into the hands of men. For as his majesty is, so is his mercy. Brothers and sisters, one of the most dangerous and deceptive things we can face when trying to please God is trying to please man or woman at the same time. We are to strive to please the creator rather than his creation, brothers and sisters. Because guess what? If you please your creator, then other people should be pleased with you. If they're following God. Now, guess what? If they're not following the Most High, then they're not going to be pleased with you following the Most High. So let's make it clear. Okay? Now, brothers and sisters, follow us to Exodus 18 and 21. Please. Why? Because according to the Bible, we just saw that what? When choosing good leadership, it needs to be based on the fear of the most high God, right? We've had Jethro, Moses' father-in-law saying, listen, one man cannot lead this nation, okay? Unless it's Christ. Uh, definitely not you, Moses. Definitely not me or any other man living at this time right now, uh, brothers and sisters. So you would need to set up good leadership, right? Let's, let's go to Exodus 18 and 21. Okay. Now, notice this is in Exodus, right? So, this is coming out. Exodus 18 and 21 reads, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and placing such over them to be rulers of thousands, and rulers of fifties, and rulers of hundreds. So, brothers and sisters, a vital step in God's process of nation-building was the selection and training of leaders to provide good government. You understand? Because if you don't have good leadership, you don't have good government. Government or government was always meant, right? So, no government is better than the character of its leaders, right? Let me read that one more time. Exodus 18 and 21 reads, moreover thou shalt provide out of all people able men such as fear God men of truth number one was such as fear God he said able men okay who are able men those who fear God men of truth so the first thing it says these men fear God these men are truthful these are not liars okay they hate covetousness you see that and it says They should be the rulers of thousands and hundreds and rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. Brothers and sisters, according to the text, selection and leadership is based in meritocracy. It's not arbitrary. Meritocracy means you select based on merit, brothers and sisters. Okay, the best person will lead. So the Bible clearly lists the qualities of character that God looks for in those he has chosen for positions of leadership, brothers and sisters. And and guess what there's a pandemic going on brothers and sisters and I'm not talking about the coronavirus there's something going on amongst our people where nobody wants to be led by black men Yeah let's just say what you know what black men have already been saying for 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 a long time there's a there's an epidemic brothers and sisters That kids, young people, don't want to be led by black men. And I I think there's there's probably some resentment there because there was no man at home, no black man, no father that was there. So now, (laughs) when it comes to black men, there is some level of pushback there. Brothers and sisters, without the man in the home first, then how can we have good leaders? How can these kids grow into good leaders? Brothers and sisters. So right away, we're showing you that the Bible says before they even got into the promised land, they needed to start what? They needed to have leadership. Okay. We're still in Exodus here. We're at Exodus. Excuse me. Let's actually go to Ecclesiasticus instead. Let's go to the Apocrypha. Ecclesiasticus 15 and 1, right? Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 15 and 1, and it reads, He that feareth the Lord will do good, and he that hath the knowledge of the law shall obtain her. Her is who? The Holy Spirit. Verse 8, jump to verse 8, Ecclesiasticus 15 and 8, and it reads, For she is far from pride, and men that are liars cannot remember her. So there's a couple of things, brothers and sisters, in the first verse in the 15th chapter, in the book of Ecclesiasticus, according to the author, there's a link between the fear of God and the acquisition of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Ecclesiasticus 15 and 1 reads He that feareth the Lord will do good, and he that hath the knowledge of the law shall obtain her. So, brothers and sisters, the author understood the connection between the fear of God and obedience, because he says the fear of the Lord will do good. He that have the knowledge of the law. See? So, brothers and sisters, we must choose the fear of the Lord if we're going to embrace wisdom and all her attributes. Okay? The text teaches us that you can measure the authenticity of a person's godly fear or lack thereof by their actions. See? Jump to uh, Ecclesiasticus 20. Chapter 20, that is. Verse 24 and 20 uh, Let's actually read 24 through 26. <clears throat> because we're talking about the fear of the Lord in leadership. Okay, because men have to understand good leadership starts with your head. Okay, authority starts with submitting to authority. Okay, see. So this is the biblical principle of authority. Remember the centurion who had hundred a hundred men under him. That's why it's called a centurion. A century is a hundred. He came to Christ and said, "Listen." You don't even have to come to my house to to heal my servant. I'm a man under authority and I have men under me. Why do I have men under me? Because I am under authority. See that? So the principle is you submit to authority. That's how you get authority. (laughs) See that? Take a look at this. We're here at Ecclesiasticus, the 20th chapter, the 24th verse, and it reads, A lie is a foul blot in a man yet it is continually in the mouth of the untaught. Verse 25, a thief is better than a man that is accustomed to lie, but they both shall have their destruction to heritage. Verse 26 Read the disposition of a liar is dishonorable and his shame is ever with him. So brothers and sisters, remember, in Exodus 18 and 21, there were, qualifications. The first qualification is provide able men, such as fear God, men of truth. Okay. And that's key. Men of truth will be selected for leadership. Now, why are we even going through this? Because according to the Bible, our time is near. Okay. So with our time being near, brothers and sisters, we have to put these things in place right now. Okay, you don't. Noah didn't wait until it rained until start until he started, you know, building the the ark, brothers and sisters. You don't wait until it rains to build the ark. So we're in preparation now. This is talking about leadership. So men, okay, and sisters should listen up to this, okay, because there's too many sisters who are having children with men they know is not going to be the good head of a household. So, sisters have to be more responsible in this, too. Also, Okay? Let me read that again. Ecclesiastes, the 20th chapter, the 24th verse, and it reads, A lie is a foul blot in a man, yet it is continually in the mouth of the untaught. A thief is better than a man that is accustomed to lie, but they both shall have their destruction to heritage. The disposition of a liar is dishonorable, and his shame is ever with him. So, brothers and sisters, his willingness to lie gives evidence to his level of biblical acumen. See, so a is often motivated by fear, brothers and sisters, and you cannot have a fearful man in leadership. Why? Because why are you lying? Why not just tell the truth? You lie because you fear the consequences. And guess what? If you're a man who fear consequences, you're not a man of leadership. See? So this level of egregious incompetence is unpalatable to the most high. You cannot allow a man to lead in whom you do not honor That's why verse 26 is absolutely vital. Let's listen to it again. Ecclesiasticus, the 20th chapter, the 26th verse, and it reads, The disposition of a liar is dishonorable, and his shame is ever with him. See that? Uh, uh, The disposition of a liar is dishonorable. So you can't allow a man to lead in whom you do not honor. Why? Because a leader's credibility is often determined by the level of respect he has garnered. See that? Deceit is the natural condition of those whose hearts are in rebellion against God, brothers and sisters. Follow us to Deuteronomy, the first chapter, the 12th through the 14th verse. Verse 12 reads, How can I myself alone bear your cumbrance and your burden and your strife? Take you wise men and understanding, known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. And ye answered me and said, The thing which thou hast spoken is good for us to do. Brothers and sisters, once again, we see that selection and leadership is based in meritocracy. Look at this again. Verse 13 reads, take ye wise men in understanding and known among your tribes. See, so these were men known for their wisdom. See that? So too many of us are, we want to be known for other things. We want to be known for name brand. I mean, we got this, uh what is it? Baby mama culture, right? Baby mama culture. Where you have a lot of baby mamas. right and even with the and guess what it's not even about
1: you know because
0: uh, the the money is not there sometimes because i know we use that as an excuse well if i just had you know if i just had more money then uh i could you know not have all these families all over the place and listen there's brothers that with, with four to five families and guess what there's even athletes brothers and sisters Athletes, well-to-do athletes with money who are not in their children's life. (laughs) And they have millions of dollars. They have millions of dollars and they just believe, you get, guess what? I can just, you know, sow my, my, you know, my, my, my seeds all over the place as long as I can pay for them. As long as I can pay for them because I'm making millions of dollars. As long as I can pay for them, even though I can't be, I'm, I'm unavailable emotionally. I'm unavailable for counsel. I'm unavailable for all those things, right? So look at this, brothers and sisters. There were qualifications. This has had an effect on our people, brothers and sisters. There's no fathers in the house. There's no leadership there. There's no male presence there. See? Take ye wise men in understanding known among your tribes and make them leadership. So the first thing we must do is establish who the leaders are. Brothers and sisters, leaders establish themselves. See that? Leaders appoint themselves. You know who the leaders are. They establish themselves. They step forward. You always know who the leader is amongst the group. So brothers and sisters, the Bible is telling you, you need to establish some level of leadership. Let's go to Hosea 4 and 6. Hosea 4 and 6 reads, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because thou has rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. So, brothers and sisters, when we see the destruction of community, the destruction of family, the corrupt state of our people, we understand that this is evidence of of rejecting his knowledge. Let's read that again. Hosea 4 and 6 reads. My people are destroyed. For a lack of knowledge. Because thou has rejected knowledge. I also will reject thee. Brothers and sisters. It's impossible to reject something. That was not available. So that means our ignorance. Was a decision. You see that. And guess what? The Most High's wrath did not come unsolicited. We provoked the Most High and therefore practically begged for his chastisement, brothers and sisters. It's clear there should be a clarion call for men to engage in protecting our people by educating them. See that? Because why? Our people were destroyed for a lack of knowledge. See, so it was the lack of knowledge that led to the destruction See, we need our men to realize this. Follow us to Proverbs 21 and 22. Proverbs 21 and 22 reads, A wise man scaleth the city of the mighty, and casteth down the strength of the confidence thereof. Brothers and sisters, the lesson here is that wisdom is better than power or strength. The city of the mighty speaks of a strong, fortified city, and scaling the city speaks of finding a way in. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. Verse 22 reads, a wise man scale of the city of the mighty and casteth down the strength of the confidence thereof. So, brothers and sisters, a wise man can accomplish through wisdom that which a strong man cannot through his physical strength. See that? <laughs> See? Brothers and sisters, let's talk about this leadership now. Let's show you some of the things that have transpired in the past um, as it pertains to uh, leadership and how we respond to leadership in authority, brothers and sisters. Uh, let's go to Numbers 16. We're going to read 1 through 5. Numbers 16 and 1 reads, Now Korah, the son of Ezar. The son of Kohath, the son of Levi and Dathan, the sons of Eba, the son of Pilah, the son of Reuben took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and saith unto them, ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation? And Moses heard it, and he fell on his face, and he spake unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he hath chosen, he will cause to come near to him. So, brothers and sisters, right away, we see that Korah was not content with what the Lord had called him to do in serving with the other Levites of the family of Kohath, right? And then in verse 3, he accused Moses of pride and exclusionary leadership. Let me read that again, brothers and sisters. Verse 3 reads, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron And saith unto them, ye take too much upon you, seeing the entire congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is amongst them. Wherefore then lift ye yourselves among the congregation of the Lord. So here he's saying, you're trying to, you're trying to, you're trying to be over these people when guess what? We're all deep here. See? So, brothers and sisters, Korah acted as if he represented the people and fought for their interests. Guess what? Moses' response to Korah's complaint says so much about God's leader. Look at how he responds. Verse 4. And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. You see that, brothers and sisters? When he heard it, he fell on his face. So, when he was challenged, he responded by what? Humility. You see that? Jump to verse 20, brothers and sisters. We're going to read 20 through 26. Numbers 20, excuse me, Numbers 16 and 20 reads, And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, Shall one man sin, and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get ye up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. And Moses rose up and went to Dathan, Abram, and the elders of Israel followed him. Verse 26 reads, And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray ye from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. So here we see, brothers and sisters, at this point, Moses warned the Jews to stay clear of the tents of court. Addressing the crowd, he, he foretold of the punishment that would befall them. Listen to this, brothers and sisters, verse 26. And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart. I pray ye from the tents of these wicked men and touching nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. You see that? Jump to verse 31 through 33, brothers and sisters. When we're here at verse 31, it reads, And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and the houses, and all the men that appertain unto Kor and all their goods, they and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. So, brothers and sisters, the, the imagery here is vivid. The earth, as his representative, is speaking for God. It says it opened its mouth. You see that? So, Korah's unwillingness to accept his role was the seed of ultimate rebellion. He was essentially dissatisfied with what God had chosen. And what we see, brothers and sisters, is although these leaders were appointed by God, they were not immune to envy and rebellion. Here it was, Moses and Aaron, appointed by God. People were dealing with envy and rebellion all underneath of them, brothers and sisters. And guess what? This rebellion demonstrates the, the grim consequences of usurping the authority of God and his chosen leaders, brothers and sisters. Now, brothers and sisters, follow us to the very next chapter, Numbers, the 17th chapter. We're going to read 1 through 10. Uh, we'll read it straight through because why? Now you're seeing the, the attack on the leadership, the, the lack of respect for the male leadership that was in place Even during this time, brothers and sisters, this is the case even today. We're here at Numbers, the 17th chapter, the first verse, and it reads, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and take every one of them a rod, according to the house of their fathers, of all their princes, according to the house of their fathers. Twelve rods, write thou every man's name upon his rod, and thou shalt write Aaron's name upon the rod of Levi, for one rod shall be for the head of the house of their fathers. So, brothers and sisters, according to the text, there was 12 rods with each tribe, the head of each tribe had a rod, okay? Verse 4 reads, and thou shalt lay them in the tabernacle of the congregation Before the testimony where I will meet with you. Verse five reads, and it shall come to pass that the the man's rod whom I shall choose shall blossom and I will make it to cease from me the murmuring of the children of Israel, whereby they murmur against you. And Moses spake unto the children of Israel and every one of their princes gave him a rod, a piece for each prince, one according to their father's house, each 12 rods. And the rod of Aaron was among their rods. So brothers and sisters, after the plague had ceased, right, after the, the, the crown had opened up for the further confirmation of the priesthood, another method is directed to by the most high God. And guess what? These sticks of wood were to bear the names of the 12 tribes. So he said, listen, 12 tribes. We want all tribal tribes to have their, eat their own stick." And when we looked at verse five, it told us that the rod that blossomed would further signal which tribe the Lord had uh, designated to be Israel's priest. Right. So the miraculous blooming of this broad uh, excuse me, the miraculous blooming of this rod would settle the dispute forever of whether Aaron was to lead the people or not. Okay. so look at this, brothers and sisters Verse verse seven reads. And Moses laid up the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. And it came to pass that on the morrow, Moses went into the tabernacle of witness. And behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. And Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord unto all the children of Israel. And they looked and took every man his rod. And the Lord saith unto Moses, bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels. And thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me that they die not. So, brothers and sisters, we're seeing we're seeing a lot of things going on here. The stick of Aaron had not only blossomed, but it had yielded ripe almonds. Right. So, brothers and sisters, we see here that leadership is selected by the most high. OK. You don't, we, you don't choose yourself as a leader. The most high selected the leadership when it comes to who's going to lead his people, brothers and sisters. And there's qualifications, it's meritocracy when it comes to leadership, brothers and sisters. And we're discussing that today. Let's go to Numbers, excuse me, actually, let's go to Deuteronomy 9 and 24, and then we'll jump to Jeremiah 2. Deuteronomy 9 and 24 reads, Ye have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. You see that? Ye have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So, brothers and sisters, the author highlights the rebellious nature of Israel since our inception. You see that? Our inception was where? (laughs) Where was our inception at, brothers and sisters? Where were we inception? Where was our inception? The wilderness. Brothers and sisters, what we just read transpired in the wilderness. See, so he's saying, you're being rebellious ever since I freed you. Let's go to Jeremiah now, brothers and sisters. We're here at Jeremiah 2 and 13. We'll read 13 through 15. Jeremiah 2 and 13 reads, for my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So, brothers and sisters, the first evil is desertion of the Most High. The second evil is attempting to find a substitute for the Most High. It tells you, brothers and sisters, that he is the fountain of living waters. We have chosen, instead of to drink at the fountain of living water, To find a broken glass to try to carry a small cup of water in. And that results in what? Let's look at Jeremiah 2 and 14. The text reads, is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? So look at this, brothers and sisters. The first thing we see is that the text emphasizes, number one, how laborious and weary our life has become, okay? Doing quadruple the labor only to, excuse me, doing quadruple the labor only to receive a quarter of the results. Look at this closely. The author tells us that they who mistake the object of their happiness reduce themselves to slaves. I'm going to read this again. Jeremiah 2 and 13 reads, for my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters. And number two. They have hewn themselves out cisterns. Broken cisterns. That can hold no water. Brothers and sisters. If you are trying to. If you're trying to quench a thirst. With a broken cup. Brothers and sisters. Or if you're trying to transfer water. To a different area. With a broken cup. You're doing more work than you actually have to. See that. You're doing more work then you actually have to. You're trying to walk away from the fountain instead of staying at the fountain. So you're trying to walk off with a glass of the water. See? So, brothers and sisters, it, it's clear that the prophet shows that Israel was not in his original condition miserable. How do we know? Listen to verse 14. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? So, brothers and sisters, it's clear, my people work harder for greatly inferior supply. See, leaving the Most High has postured us for infinite labor. It's clear in the text, brothers and sisters. What we're reading is self-inflicted slavery. See, it's crystal clear, brothers and sisters. This is self-inflicted slavery. Follow us. Jump to Numbers 11 and 5, brothers and sisters. And we're going to read Numbers 11 and 6. Here it is. We're at Numbers 11 and 5. Because why? He said, you have rebelled against me since your inception. Where were we conceived at? The wilderness. We're here at Numbers 11 and 5. And it reads, We remember the fish we did eat in Egypt freely. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions, and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There's nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. Now, brothers and sisters, this were the words of these uh, slaves that had just been recently freed as the Most High is feeding them daily with this heavenly food. They say, what? Verse 5 reads, We remember the fish we did eat in Egypt freely. So look at this. You say you want to be free, but then you're looking for a handout. Guess what? Freedom means you provide for yourself. See, when you're in Egypt, they have to feed you. Why? Because you're their slave. That's why they're giving you the food stamps. And they're going to continue to give it to you as long as you're their slave. Now, the moment that you try to push back, then you're going to have a problem. Okay, we have to keep our slaves fed, though, and strong so they could work the fields. We have to give our slaves free health care. Why? So they can work the fields. See? So it was clear, brothers and sisters, our people said they wanted freedom, but they were looking for handouts. Let me read that again. Numbers 11 and 5 reads, we remember the fish we did eat. In Egypt, freely, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. So now look at this. They have now been freed in their complaining about their diet, brothers and sisters. Now, brothers and sisters, the lesson for us is to choose God over our fleshly desires. Then we will be rewarded in his kingdom of God. And I'm going to show you how important this is, brothers and sisters. A lot of things transpired in the Bible over food, okay? Let's go back to Genesis 25, okay? Remember, that's where we started today. Genesis 25 and 28 reads, And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sighed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said unto Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. Now, brothers and sisters, why would Jacob think to ask Esau to sell his birthright over some porridge? Notice how the porch is identified. Let us read that again. Genesis twenty-five and twenty-eight reads, and Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, his deer. But Rebekah loved Jacob, and Jacob sighed pottage. And Esau came from the field. He was faint. He was hungry. Brothers and sisters, verse thirty reads, and Esau saith unto Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom, which means red. It calls it red pottage, which means it wasn't done. There was blood still in the meat, brothers and sisters. According to the Bible, that is against God. You're not allowed to eat bloody food. Because why? The soul is in the blood. The spirit is in the blood. So that was cannibalistic. That was vampiristic. Brothers and sisters, that's what Europeans do. They like their stuff rare and bloody. That's against God. Okay, you are to cook the blood out of that steak. Okay, and guess what? Black people, if you come to a black cookout, listen, (laughs) you won't see any blood, I can assure. And we didn't even know why. It's biblical, brothers and sisters. See that? So that's why Jacob asked for the birthright, because he knew what Esau was asking was against God. And since you're willing to go against God, are you willing to also give up that birthright, Esau? (laughs) See? Verse 31 reads, And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I'm at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him. And he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, brothers and sisters, right away in verse 28, we learn that Isaac's love for Esau was defined by his appetite, right? Genesis 25 and 28 reads, And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. Now, remember, the Bible tells you that Esau was a hunter. See, the white man loves to hunt. He loves guns. It said that Jacob was a man of the house. We don't do hunting. We don't go hiking and all that. We don't do that. That was Esau, our brother, our big brother, mind you. See, that's why I said he loved Esau because he ate of his venison. Esau was a hunter. See, Jacob was where? When Esau came home, where was Jacob at? He was home. He was cooking. We're homebodies. We don't be all out in, in, in nature and all that, looking at snakes and wrestling, crocodiles and all that. That's not us. That's Esau. Okay? That's our brother, our European brother, so to speak. We just wanted to show you, brothers and sisters, that he valued a full stomach even more than his birthright, which was a spiritual heritage. We're talking about Esau now. Why? Because he was willing to sell his birthright for food. So, brothers and sisters, it should not be appetite that determines destiny decisions, okay? Esau is shown to be impulsive and a man ruled by his passions. So, we're showing you, even though you think it may be small because it's just diet, brothers and sisters, some of the greatest sins, some of the greatest transgressions, some of the greatest mistakes were made over. Diet, brothers and sisters. Okay? In fact, let's go to Genesis 27 and 2. Further proof. While we're talking about appetite. We're at Genesis 27 and 2. And it reads, And he saith, Behold now, I am old. I know not the day of my death. Now therefore, take, I pray thee, thy weapons, thy quiver and thy bow, and go out to the field and take me some venison, and make me savory meat, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless thee before I die. This is him talking to his son, brothers and sisters. Jump jump to verse 25 through 28. Genesis 25 reads, And he said, Bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's venison, that my soul may bless thee. And he brought it near to him, and he did eat, and he brought him wine, and he drank. And his father Isaac saith unto him, Come near now, and kiss me, my son. And he came near, and kissed him, and smelled the smell of his raiment, and blessed him. And said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field, which the Lord hath blessed. Look at this, brothers and sisters. So we know that during this time, we know the story already, Jacob has put on, you know, different hairy skins on him. So when his father, who is blind at this time, gets on him, he smells like outdoors and he feels very hairy. You see this, brothers and sisters? This is the white man loving to be outdoors, hiking and all that, wrestling alligators and, you know, stingrays and snakes, all that. Right. Hairy. See? See? What did we see here, though? Israel, excuse me, Isaac is an example of an unchecked ruling passion, brothers and sisters. Because why? Isaac allowed his appetite to get in the way of executing God's plan. See that? You're trying to give a blessing to somebody that you know is not following God. And here we see Isaac was deceived because he was blinded by his appetite. He loved the food that his son made. So it's clear that left unchecked, your appetites will become a snare to you, just as it did to Isaac. See, so the book of Genesis teaches us that both Isaac and Esau were both ruled by their appetites. That's father and son. Because remember, Esau is the son of Isaac. Isaac, what? Given to appetite. Esau, given to appetite. So Esau and Isaac are both under the tyranny of their appetites, acting as slaves to the desires of their flesh. You see that, brothers and sisters? Follow us to Ecclesiastes 18 and 30. And it reads, Go not after thy lust, but refrain thyself from thine appetites. If thou givest thy soul the desires that please her, she will make thee a laughingstock to thine enemies that malign thee. Brothers and sisters, the author is teaching us to conquer our appetites. Why? Because capitulation to our sinful appetite will result in the yoke of bondage. Brothers and sisters, it's clear we must refrain from a life of pleasure and dissipation. Let's read those two scriptures again. Ecclesiasticus 18 and 30 reads, Go not after thy lust, but refrain thyself from thine appetites. If thou giveth thy soul the desires that please her, she will make thee a laughingstock to thine enemies that malign thee. So, brothers and sisters, according to the text, Your decisions cannot be carnally driven because why? We know that bad choices are motivated by carnal desires. Okay, brothers and sisters, we know that without any shadow of a doubt. Brothers and sisters, follow us to Proverbs, the 25th chapter and the 28th verse. Proverbs 25 and 28 reads, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Brothers and sisters, this is a reference to uh, self-control. Without it, a person is is certain to be victimized, brothers and sisters. Why? Because when you lack self-control, you are at the absolute mercy of your enemies. Look at the illustration in the text. Brothers and sisters, back in the time of antiquity, especially during biblical days, brothers and sisters, most cities had a wall around it to protect it. Right. Just like Donald Trump was saying he was going to build a wall. Why? To stop people from invading. Right. Uh, to, to protect it. Right. So the Bible is telling you a man who have no self-control is like a city that is broken down and without walls. The walls are there for what? For protection from the enemy. So if you don't have control over your own spirit, you don't have protection from the enemy, according to the Bible. And that's what we were seeing. Um, with We saw it with Isaac. We saw it with Esau. So we saw it with our brother. We also saw it with our father. We also saw it with ourselves, with the manna in the wilderness. So this is why we're breaking this out, brothers and sisters, because like father, like sons. So you may think that it's a small thing, but brothers and sisters, the first sin had to do with food. Okay? (laughs) The very first sin had to do with diet. Okay? Let's not overlook that. In fact, let's go to Ezekiel 37, Valley of the Dry Bones. We're going to jump around here. We're going to read verse 1 and 2 to get context, and then we'll go to 11 and 12 to identify who this chapter is referring to, okay? Let's go to Ezekiel 37 and one, and it reads, the hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones. Verse two reads, and it caused me to pass by them round about and behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. Brothers and sisters, this is Ezekiel is having a vision. He's saying, listen, I was in the spirit. The Most High took me into a valley full of just skeletons and dry bones in the midst of a dry desert, a valley, right? Verse seven, excuse me, verse 11 reads. Then he saith unto me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dry and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Verse 12 reads, therefore prophesy, say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Brothers and sisters, when it says I will open your graves, what is he telling you? That our people are dead spiritually. We're spiritually dead, brothers and sisters. We are the valley of the dry bones. So this vision that Ezekiel was seeing was our people just spiritually dead. No, 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 identity. Have no clue who we are. Have no clue who each other are. Have no clue who our God is. Have no land of our own. Dead to the knowledge of our God. Dead to the knowledge of our own identity. Dead to the knowledge of who our brothers and sisters are. Dead to the knowledge of where our land is, what to call home, where to call home. Valley of the Dry Bones. You see this? See, so Malcolm X knew that we were the children of Israel. Go listen to that, that address again, that speech again, the Valley of the Dry Bones, where he, he was saying that we were, The Valley of the Dry Bones, which we are, because we're the children of Israel. See that? The Bible is telling you the children of Israel, those people that we discussed, are like dead, dry bones. They're like skeletons. They're in graves. See that? So they were dead, but it tells you, prophesy and bring them back to life. See, therefore, verse 12 reads, therefore prophesy and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, oh, my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into your land of Israel. So this is how we know those people are not the Jews when they moved back there in 1948. That was the United Nations that brought them there, brothers and sisters. That was not Christ. The Bible tells you that the Most High in Christ would bring us back into the land of Israel. Not the European Union, okay? So the first thing we needed to establish is that the Valley of the Dry Bones is referring to the children of Israel, and it says that we are dead spiritually. Now, what can we learn about being dead or being brought back from the dead? Brothers and sisters, we have to go to Lazarus because Lazarus taught us something about coming back from the dead, spiritual dead, for us. John eleven and thirty nine reads: Christ said, "Take ye away the stone, Martha, the sister of him that was dead." Saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Christ saith unto her, "Said I not unto thee?" That if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from that place where the dead was laid. And Christ lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which I stand by, I said it that they may believe that I, excuse me, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. Christ saith unto him, loose him and let him go. So, brothers and sisters, the second part of deliverance was the removal of the grave clothes. You see that? So he was revised. First comes revival and then comes the deliverance, brothers and sisters. So look at this. He was revived, but yet he was still bound because the text tells you he was bound hand and foot with the grave clothes. So, brothers and sisters, it would essentially um, wrap you up. Um, to preserve you with spices and different things. So you couldn't really walk or move because you've been wound and wrapped tightly in these what is called grave clothes. So brothers and sisters, when Lazarus came out of the tomb, he still carried some remnants of the grave. Let me read that again, brothers and sisters. John 11 and 43 reads, And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, and he say, and, and he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Christ saith unto him, Loose him, and let him go. So, according to the text, Lazarus needed help taking off the remnants of his old life, brothers and sisters. See? So, the possession of these garments gives us evidence that deliverance is yet to be complete. Because, why? If you have these garments, you're still bound. You're alive, but you're bound. So, Christ used the physical miracle to prove a spiritual reality, brothers and sisters. And guess what? In this case, I think we see a physical analogy that acknowledges an important part of the spiritual reality, which is, Even though the Most High have brought us back from the dead, we still have some things about us (laughs) that are remnant of our old life, brothers and sisters. Okay, so in the Bible, clothes refer to your attitude. So when it referred to a clothes, brothers and sisters, it referred to your demeanor, to your attitude, and to who you are. So what we're seeing here is this brother had on grave clothes. It's just like a, a uniform, a police uniform, dict- it tells you who this person is, right? If a person have on a um, a firefighter's uniform, they're probably a firefighter. So common sense would tell you usually clothing, brothers and sisters, should tell you something about a person. See? Let's show you this. Let's follow us to 1 Samuel 17 and 34, brothers and sisters. And we're going to read 34 through 36. 1 Samuel 17 and 34 reads, And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Brothers and sisters, according to the text, David's time as a shepherd taught him how to fight beast to prepare him for his epic battle with Goliath. He's telling you that, listen, I've kept when I kept my father's sheep, I came in contact with a lion and a bear that tried to take one of the lambs out of the flock and I had to deliver that lamb out of the flock. So, what were we seeing here, brothers and sisters? This is what he used to convince Saul that he should allow him to go to war. So, this tells us that if he had never killed the lion and the bear, Saul would have never let him face Goliath, and the Israelites wouldn't have accepted David as their king. So, brothers and sisters, many people get excited about their destiny and purpose, but rarely. Do they want to engage in the refining process that prepares them to stand in that purpose? You see that? So even though David was destined to be king, he still had to go do what? Tend sheep. See, he tended sheep after he knew he was going to be king, brothers and sisters. And while he was tending sheep, that's where he, that's where he found his qualifications. That's where the merit was based in. Why? Because he he fought against a lion and a bear. And guess what? If you haven't fought the lion and the bear yet, you have no business standing in front of Goliath. See that? So you work your way up to Goliath. You see that? So we're seeing it clearly, brothers and sisters, that even though We have a destiny. We still have to take the steps. Okay. We can't go straight to, you know, collect $200. Pass go. We're here at Isaiah 61 and 6. We have about three scriptures and we're going to close out. Isaiah 61 and 6 reads, but ye shall be named the priest of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of God ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and their glory shall ye boast yourselves. For your shame, ye shall have double. For your confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them, and strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. And the sons of the alien, or the foreigners Shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. Brothers and sisters, that was verse 5. So we, we read verse 6, 7, and then we jumped to verse 5. Let me read verse 5 again. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the alien shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. Brothers and sisters, the first text tells us that. When you look at verse 6, priority gives Israel the prerogatives of the priesthood. Listen to this. Isaiah 61 and 6 reads, But ye shall be named the priest of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat of the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory ye shall boast of yourselves. So, brothers and sisters, Israelites would not oppress their former oppressors. Okay? Okay. We would actually mediate between the Most High and the Gentiles, right? So our office of the priesthood means what? That the world shall be tributary to us. That's why he said, ye shall eat of the riches of the Gentiles. Because why? The priests received the riches just like they did in the Bible, okay? So you actually didn't give your tithes and all that to God. You gave it to his priests so they could do God's work, right? So riches will be honorably presented to us as payment for our service of the priesthood, brothers and sisters. It's crystal clear that the wealth of the nations will be given as wages for the occupation of the priesthood. Who is the priesthood? The children of Israel. See that? Let's go to uh, 2 Chronicles 31 and 4 and then we'll end it at uh, 1 Peter 2 and 9. Let's show you what we mean about what the priest is supposed to to receive uh, for his ministry. We're at 2 Chronicles 31 and 4, and it reads, Moreover, he commanded the people that dwell in Jerusalem to give the portion of the priest and the Levites that they might be encouraged in the law of the Lord. And as soon as the commandment came abroad, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of corn, Wine, oil, and honey, and all the increase of the field, and the tithe of all things brought they in abundantly. See, so the tithes, it actually wasn't money. It was corn, wine, oil, honey, all things they needed to live, brothers and sisters. So the priests earned their living by doing the special work that God had given them, right? And we see here that the priests were provided for and supported, brothers and sisters. So as the priests in Israel lived off the contributions of their fellow Israelites in the past, so all the Israelites would live off the contributions of the Gentiles in the future. So we're reading a promise of provision for his priesthood. See that? Let's go to 1 Peter 2 and 9 and we're going to end it here, brothers and sisters. First Peter 2 and 9 reads, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, it says ye are a chosen generation. Peter commonly uses this terminology in reference to Israel. Brothers and sisters, and guess what? This choosing is a work totally of God's grace and unmerited favor. Okay? And then it tells you that not only would we be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, but a peculiar people. Brothers and sisters, among those of the earth, there are a people who are radically different. And it's us. See? So, the text emphasizes the privileged identity in conjunction with the responsibility that Israel possesses. See, we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, and the responsibility is to show forth praise. See? So, brothers and sisters, the title of today's lesson, The Beginning is Near. And in fact, I want to read one more scripture. 2nd Ezra, the 6th chapter in the ninth verse, and it reads, For Esau is the end of the world, and Jacob is the beginning of it, that followeth." Brothers and sisters, there is a paradigm shift. Things are getting ready to be shaken, brothers and sisters. And you have people that are going to look to scratch and claw And going to look to fight every step of the way in order to sustain their supremacy, brothers and sisters. People have died over less. They know this Bible, brothers and sisters. Okay, They have their best scholars breaking down these prophecies. So they understood that we were going to wake up. And they also understood that it was prophesied that they were going to serve us. And they're not looking forward to that, brothers and sisters. So the title of today's lesson is The Beginning is Near. We want to say, Qam Yasharala, sin no more.